Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The year started with Donald Trump ordering the public assassination of leading Iranian general Qasem Soleimani by a drone strike in Baghdad, the capital of neighboring Iraq. What are the prospects for the struggle between the US and Iran? Does this mean war? What about the people of Iraq? And what will this mean next for the region's popular uprisings? This episode of Socialism looks at the Middle East in turmoil, Iran and Iraq. I'm here with Robert Beckett of the Committee for a Workers International to discuss the turbulent situation in Iran and Iraq. Hello, Robert. Hi. So after Soleimani's killing, there was immediately anger in parts of the Middle East and fears all across the world, actually, of a new war, even a third world war. However, for the moment, this seems to have fizzled out. So the first questions will be, why did Trump do it? Why hasn't a war developed out of it? And is a new world war a possibility today? Yeah, I think from the point of view of looking at Trump's motives, because it seems like a complete reversal of his previous reluctance to order military action against Iran, I think you have to look at it from the point of view of the partly the domestic situation in the US itself. Mm. On the one hand, as Trump himself once accused Obama of, this is useful for him in the run-up to this year's US election. It's also just when he was beginning to face the threat of the Senate discussing the impeachment of him, which the Democrats had brought forward. Clinton himself, as president, did the same thing, didn't exactly, he? Exactly, exactly. And also, Trump did not want to be put in the same position as the then-President Carter was faced with when the US embassy staff were held hostage in Iran at the end of the 1970s. And also, he didn't want to risk the repeat of the 2015 killing of the US ambassador to Libya. And so in these situations, he felt it was necessary to make this strike, to carry out this public assassination. Now, immediately, as you said, this evoked anger in parts of the Middle East, though also there were elements of celebration in some parts of the Middle East as well. Mm. But it was anger in large parts of the Middle East and an immediate fear of war. And we felt at the time that while this certainly would have repercussions in the Middle East that it would not lead to a world conflict. And what we seem to have seen in the last few days is a very calibrated response from the half of the Iranian regime. The retaliation, the missiles which were launched against the US bases in Iraq seem to be very limited, apparently have not caused much damage or casualties. I mean, it looks like it was, it was almost like a gesture of retaliation. Now, the reasons for that are difficult to immediately see. But the likelihood is, on the one hand, the Iranian regime did not want to invite, if you like, immediate retaliation from Trump in terms of direct attacks on Iranian soil itself. But in doing that, it doesn't mean that the retaliation for this assassination is over that there couldn't be further strikes by the uh, Iranian regime and by its supporters. On the other hand, one of the big objectives of the Iranian regime 
is to force the withdrawal of US and other foreign troops from Iraq. And what appears to have happened now is that the pressure for the withdrawal of the US and other troops from Iraq has enormously increased. Mm. And if the Iranian regime was able to achieve that, that would be an immensely positive outcome for them because it would further strengthen their position in the region. Do you want to get into why a world war is not on the cards? Clearly, there were immense fears that this assassination would provoke a far wider conflict outside the Middle East. Yeah, there were comparisons on social media with Franz Ferdinand and the start of the, what was that, the First World War? The Second yes, World War. After the First, First World, World War. War, yeah. Yes, and that was trending on social media for a period. And those fears were absolutely understandable because of, on the one hand, the bellicose language which Trump immediately adopted mm-hmm. when he was, you know, quite brutal about it, and then the threats that he was making against Iran, not just to destroy 52 sites in Iran itself, but also particularly the threat against cultural, uh, you know, objects of cultural heritage, which was like seen as a threat, not just against military or economic targets, but against the Iranian population as a whole. And Given the volatility which is seen in the world situation and Trump's previous threats, it's totally understandable that these fears were expressed by large numbers of people. But at the same time, at this time, there isn't, if you like, the world situation when the world powers would actually go to war. We saw already that in the run-up to this decision to carry out the assassinations, Trump appears to have ignored the advice of the US military, they presented him with a series of options of how to retaliate against Iran after the missile attack killed one US defense contractor. And it seems that the US military commanders were themselves surprised that Trump adopted the most extreme option. They didn't expect him to do that. And as I said earlier, it was really domestic political reasons which led Trump to make that decision. And in this situation where the leadership of the military and big sections of the capitalist class in the US don't see the point in threatening a world war which could destroy large parts of their own wealth as well, let alone the damage it would do to the humanity and the planet itself, this was was not really posed as something which would develop now. So this is after the destruction of the previous two world wars, the development of nuclear weapons, all these things these give the ruling classes pause for thought in initiating that kind of struggle, you think? Well, particularly a world war. We're given, as you said, with nuclear weapons, with all the destruction which would be involved in that, that would actually leave very little for the victors to celebrate. Mm. You could win a world war, the leadership of the different capitalist countries, they themselves could survive the world war, but their system would be ruined, would be wrecked by the damage which would be wrought through any world war. That's not to say that you couldn't have one develop at a later stage where a section of a ruling class felt that perhaps they could win a preemptive strike against their rivals, but even that would be enormously dangerous, not simply from the point of view of the destruction it would reach, but also that any attempt of such a world war would meet almost inevitably enormous opposition from the population of the world. So, for all sorts of political reasons, military strategic reasons, technological reasons, a world war 
thank goodness, is very unlikely. That doesn't mean, of course, that proxy wars, local wars, regional conflicts can't flare up, and that was on the cards, but that didn't transpire this time for reasons which you've explained. But to return to focus them on the region itself. Soleimani's assassination led to celebrations in the streets in some parts of Iraq, but at the same time the Iraqi parliament responded by voting to expel US troops from the country, and of course the US was the force responsible for this attack, and street demonstrations in some areas actually demanded the expulsion of both US and Iranian forces, and even became embroiled in gunfights with mourning processions for Soleimani, which were taking place in Iraq at the same time. So all these developments within Iraq seem to contradict each other. What is going on? Well, I think the different reactions inside Iraq and also in other parts of the Middle East really reflect the turmoil which is taking place in the region, but also the fault lines which exist in the different countries. Mm. Because, as you said, the Iraqi parliament voted to demand the withdrawal of the US and other foreign forces. But what is significant in that vote is that the majority of members of the Iraqi parliament who represented either the Kurdish or the Sunni populations in Iraq boycotted that meeting. So they, the Sunni being one of the two main Muslim denominations, the others being the Shiites. And the majority in Iraq are Shiites. What was significant was that that session of the Iraqi parliament was effectively boycotted by a majority of its Kurdish members and also the members who represented the Sunni denomination of Islam. They boycotted that session and they didn't vote for the withdrawal of US troops. And that reflects, if you like, the divide inside Iraq at the present time, where the minority populations in Iraq, in this sense the Kurds and the Sunnis, fear domination by the majority Shiite population. It's an indication of the religious and national fault lines which exist throughout the Middle East. At the same time, even within the majority in the Iraqi parliament, which voted for the withdrawal of the US troops, there was a division. Mm. On the one hand, there were those forces which were more pro-Iranian, linked towards the Iranian regime, and also there was the other forces inside the Iraqi parliament, led mainly by al-Sada, who are more, in a certain way, Iraqi nationalists who oppose not just the US, but also oppose the Iranian influence in Iraq. So, and sorry, it, who or what is al-Sada? Al-Sada, you've got a block in the Iraqi parliament, a coalition of different forces, partly led by al-Sada, who is a well-known cleric based in Baghdad, who has very large support in parts of Iraq, mm -hmm. who has developed a sort of nationalistic position of favouring Iraqi independence and against domination either by the US or by Iran. Mm. And the coalition that he leads, which also has some support from secular parties as well in Iraq, is a substantial part of the Iraqi parliament. And it's partly that current of opinion which was behind the demonstrations which you mentioned earlier in Iraq in the last few days against the what they call both oppressors, the US and Iran. Both occupiers. Is Iran a Sunni country or a Shiite country majority? Massively Shiite. So both Iraq and Iran yes. are Shiite-led? Yes. Okay. So Iran is a regional imperial power. 
It's in competition with the United States, which is a global imperial power, and they're competing for strategic military control, for political influence, and ultimately for markets and profitable resources in that region, in the Middle East. And the country of Iraq is one of the theatres where their struggle is playing out, with an extraordinary profile in the case of this assassination of the Iranian general in Baghdad. So what is the current balance in this struggle between the US and Iran? And what do the New Year's developments indicate, do you think, about the prospects for US and Iranian capitalism now? The fundamental thing now in that region of the Middle East is that the result of the Bush-Blair invasion of Iraq in 2003 was in fact not what they expected. On the one hand, Iraq broke up. Their strategy inside Iraq actually failed. But secondly, in the region, it enormously strengthened the position of the Iranian regime in the region. Mm. We see that now with the influence of the Iranian regime in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, and in other parts of the region. And this was, in a way, a defeat for the whole policy of Bush and Blair in that region, because they hoped not just to, if you like, defeat Saddam Hussein, but also to isolate the Iranian regime and in that way support their own main allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE and other smaller countries in that region. And that policy has absolutely failed. And this is another factor in the turmoil in the Middle East, the fear of the regimes in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in UAE, fear of both movements from their own population and also fear of their weakening regional position because of the strength of Iran and because the way in which Iranian influence has extended in the area. So you explained earlier that the Committee for a Workers International doesn't think a world war is on the agenda, but regional wars are a very real possibility. And in 2019, the Middle East in particular saw the re-emergence, as you've mentioned, of huge popular protests against various of the region's regimes, which organised across the various religious and ethnic sectarian lines, the divide between Sunnis and Shiites, between the different national groupings and so on. What effect would a war breaking out have on these very important movements? The movements themselves have partly developed as a reaction against the wars which have taken place against ISIS and other religious fundamentalist groupings. Because if we look at the way in which ISIS fought, ISIS fought in an extremely sectarian way. It based itself on the Sunni denomination, was extremely hostile to Shia Muslims and to other denominations and other religions in the region, and waged a really vicious sectarian warfare against their enemies. And it's one reason why Suleiman, despite the repression which he was involved in, in Iran itself, was nevertheless seen by some as a relatively hero figure mm. because of the role which he played in pushing back ISIS in the recent period. Though we have to say that it's quite possible that given the new turmoil which has developed, ISIS will continue to regroup and in a certain form can come back again in the future. And it was partly in reaction against the sectarianism uh, the sectarian warfare which ISIS unleashed, that you had a development of these movements which quite deliberately were of a 
if you like, of a non-sectarian character of trying to unite the population of different nationalities of different religious denominations. But that was also linked to what had happened earlier since 2011 in what was called the Arab Spring, mm. in the revolutions which took place there. Because what we have seen in the movements which developed last year, in the early part of the year, in Sudan and Algeria, and then later on in 2019, we saw the movements which developed in Lebanon, in Iraq, and also in Iran. Mm. We saw these movements develop in a way where in many cases lessons were being learned from 2011. On the one hand, the general demand for the removal of the old regimes, learning the lesson of what happened in Egypt where Mubarak was overthrown, but the old regime fundamentally stayed, and then the old regime staged a counter-revolution and got back to power. Mm. But also seeing how in some of the movements which took place, the differences between the different nationalities and religions were used by the ruling classes or by the military regimes in order to try and divert, to split the movement. Mm. And given that in most of the countries in the Middle East, like most countries in the world, are not homogeneous, they've got majorities and minorities in them, whether it be of religious and or of national characteristics. Therefore, the idea, which we saw very clearly in the Lebanon, of bringing together the different religious denominations, whether it be the different denominations of Islam, the different denominations of Christianity and other religions, the idea that they were Lebanese themselves united against the old government, against the ruling class. And so therefore, we've had these movements which have been very, very important because they represented, if you like, elements of drawing the lessons of the experience of what happened after 2011, but also the idea of building a united movement. So it's a very important sentiment which we have seen in these movements, a sentiment which was a threat to all the regimes in the Middle East, which is why Suleiman himself was very involved in the repression which was taking place in Lebanon, in Iraq, and in Iran itself. Of attacking these movements. Exactly. But also what we saw is that while these movements had tremendously important sentiments, unless those sentiments are organised, unless the movements are organised, unless they have a programme with which they can actually implement their wishes, then the sentiments themselves are not enough to achieve victory. So this is a very important question then. What have these popular uprisings is really what they are in many countries in the Middle East achieved and what lessons can be drawn from them going forward? It clearly differs in different countries. I mean, in the Sudan, it has achieved in the last year the overthrow of the dictatorship, but the movement has been diverted with those who became leaders of the movement accepting a collaboration in a military led government in the Sudan. Mm. The government there is very weak, the movement is still continuing, but the danger in Sudan is like we've seen in other revolutions, that at a certain moment the old order, the counter-revolution, can come back and take power. That is something which we've seen, unfortunately, in revolution after revolution. It's something which is posed in Sudan unless the revolution there is able to break entirely with the old regime and establish a new order, an order based, if you like, on the government and control of the working people themselves. In other countries, 
where the revolutions haven't gone that far as they have in Sudan at the present time, we've seen significant successes, for instance, in Lebanon, but there is there a certain stalemate. Mm. You've got the mass movement which is existing there, but again, the question is, what is the way forward? How can the mass movement, how can the mass of the population organise their power? And that means overthrowing the ruling class. That is not so clear in Lebanon at the present time. In Iran, Suleiman and the regime were able to brutally suppress the movements which took place at the end of 2019. It's not clear how many died. The estimates of how many died range from 300 to over 1,000 in a matter of weeks in Iran. That's incredible. Plus, with thousands being injured and thousands being arrested. And on that basis, they were able for a time to, if you like, to suppress the movement. But the movement which took place in Iran at that stage was not the first of the recent movements. Earlier on, a year before, we had a very significant movement led by workers in different strike movements, which weren't just on questions like wages or unemployment. They were also, for instance, in some cases, demanding the renationalization of privatized industries, mm. the right to organize free and independent trade unions, that if the industries were renationalized, there should be democratic workers' control of those industries. All of that represented a beginning of a revival of the workers' organizations in Iran, which the regime, again, moved to repress. Mm. There was a certain repression, and that has continued through last year with repression against trade union activists in different forms. But then the increase in the price of oil towards the end of 2019 provoked this latest movement, which was across the entire country and involved not just workers, but large numbers of youth and others came out onto the streets to protest. Now, as I said, that has been repressed for now, but in Iran, it's a very unstable situation. And in one sense, this assassination has given the regime a breathing space. Okay. There are reports that Suleiman himself was looking at trying to engage or provoke some kind of conflict with the US in Iraq as a way, if you like, of creating a diversion for the movement in Iran itself. Mm. And certainly in Iran, there's, like in Iraq, a mixed attitude towards the assassination. On the one hand, if you look at the size of the, the funeral and the mass protests in Iran in the last few days... So big that some people were killed in a crush, weren't they? Exactly that it partly represented a mobilisation by the regime, but there was also something genuine in it. The idea that Suleiman himself, despite his repression, was seen as a bit more honest than some of the others. He was also seen as, if you like, defeating ISIS, which in a sheer majority country was seen as quite important. You know, the defeat of ISIS itself, the fact that ISIS wasn't able, if you like, to reach Iran, was stopped in Iraq. And also, as I mentioned before, the crudity of Trump's statements about attacking Iran, that provoked a nationalist reaction because of the historic hostility towards the US. Mm. Because in Iranian tradition, there is, remember, the coup of 1953, when a liberal government in Iran, which was talking about nationalizing the oil industry, was overthrown by a coup organized by the US and British imperialisms. And so there is that legacy there. At the same time, 
Despite that, there was also others in Iran who didn't protest at the assassination because they remembered the brutality which Suleiman was linked with in the sense of repeatedly repressing opposition movements in Iran, mm. not just in recent years, but also in previous decades as well. So it's a very mixed situation in the different countries. But we see this potential. But as I said before, potential is important. But when you have these sort of movements which have taken place in different countries, the desires are very important. They're the starting point. It gets people motivated to move into activity. But then the movement has got to organize and not just organize itself, because in Sudan last year, there was elements of the movement organize itself, but then also have a clear program of how it is going to concretely achieve its aims. And that means having a program of how to win power to drive out the old ruling class and, if you like, begin a reconstruction of society. So this would mean nationalising the commanding heights of the economy, redistributing the land, state power for the organised working class? For the organised working class and the poor. Mm. Because in many of these countries, I mean, especially, say, something like in Iraq, because of the destruction which has taken place of the economy there, it's both the working class, it's the poor... It's other sections of society. How do you organize them so that they themselves take power? It's a bit different in Iran, because in Iran you've got a more developed economy. As I said before, you've had a beginning of a revival in the trade unions in Iran as independent trade unions which are prepared to struggle. And really, if you look at the whole Middle East, you have in Iran, in Egypt and in Turkey, potentially strong working classes. But even in, in the other countries... The organisation of the working class, of the poor, that can be the basis for, if you like, as you said, a different regime, a different state power, which is then able to begin the transformation of society, breaking with capitalism, with landlordism, the elements of feudalism which still exist, and beginning, if you like, a reconstruction of society in something which, given the character of the Middle East, if that was achieved in one country, that could have a very big impact in the other countries where we've seen in the last 10 years or so different movements take place. Thanks very much, Robert. Pleasure. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. This week we heard from Robert Beckett and I'm James Ivans. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you join our campaign to build a truly effective working-class fighting force in the trade union and labour movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. And don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. And we want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk And Socialism Podcast has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people and we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. 
you can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.